Warning, the following show is intended for mature audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. We are live. Episode, I want to say it's 26 of season two coffee with the Johns. Friday, what? July the 9th. How's it going? Crazy week, rainy week. Yes, man. Yes, but the weather all over the U.S. Man, yeah. Tired of it. Freaking Seattle, Washington, all these places hitting like one fifteen. As I thought, like July was supposed to be the, the nice months. They're just getting hammered with shitty weather. Did you see that? Uh, did I tell you about that video that I saw online about the guy that says he's like from Canada and just like that? No. Oh, it's hilarious. So it's a guy like sitting there like on his bed with like really like sad depressed look looking over the edge of like a bed or something like that. And he's like, Hey Texas, it's Canada. Remember how we sent you one of our winter storms as a joke in February? We're really sorry about that. <laughs> like in a Canadian accent, it's like, it was just a joke. Can you come get your summers back, please? <laughs> I just started dying. Because like, he just has like this guy with a beard just sitting there like all the princess looks hot as hell because they don't have air conditioners. Yeah. At least here we do have heaters. Uh, but they're like, they don't own air conditioners. So it's like just pants. It's 100 degrees, like 85 in their house. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like, yeah, it's like it was get we um, they had a puts a window unit in the bedroom uh just like the cool is like it was pretty because they don't have ac in their house and um he's like yeah i got to 85 degrees and it's like inside and he's like it was just miserable i'm not built for this stuff anymore and I'm like suckers. yeah the heat sucks that's why it's like I, I always tell my wife i was like yep yeah, we definitely overshot oh my should, god I you should and not have come this far south i did not know i hated the summer as much as i do it's uh it's crazy, but that being said, I mean, right now it has not been a typical Texas summer. I mean, we're this whole week we've been in the eighties. That's definitely. Well, I not mean, even typical. May, like even May, like it's like we never got hot in May except for like one or two days. Yeah. Like June kind of normalized a little bit, yeah, but nothing but crazy. Even then, I think we had like a week or so, maybe of like like hot, but other than that, like yeah, see, see? everything's it, shifting. So now crazy. this is where this is where to be. Now you're like, I hated the summers. Now it's like, well, here's, man, here's if your new Texas can grow some trees and mountains, I'm all for staying here. I just you don't your, see that happening. You and your mountain. That being said, we have a, a bunch of interesting articles and topics to cover today. We're actually going to be talking about, you know, oil prices, how crazy they're going to be getting, uh, especially with all the issues with OPEC and everything, what you can expect for gas and how that affects everything else. A lot of people just complain about gas prices every time they go fill up the car but it's like <laughs> it affects a lot more than just your gas tank so we're going to be covering that there's uh some very interesting real estate news for san antonio texas um opportunities coming everybody's way that if you jump on it it's some great opportunities um we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about uh this massive 70 million dollar ransom hackers did over the july 4th weekend so a lot of a lot of fun stuff, a lot of good articles. Um, one of the things I actually wanted to start with, especially as everybody's prepping for you know summer traveling and everything, getting ready to go to the beaches, is how shitty Texas beaches are. And I don't mean that just in like oh they're shitty. No, like literally shitty. So, heading to the beach for a getaway, 
be careful which beach you go to in Texas because swimming in poop is nobody's idea of a good time. Yes, it's gross. And yes, it's true. Several Texas beaches have been deemed potentially unsafe along the Gulf Coast because of fecal matter, sewage, poop, human dung, whatever you want to call it. So Newsweek reports that according to an environment, uh, according to an Environment America report, beaches along the Texas Gulf Coast were worse than the national average. The report didn't mention what the national average was, but did say that 82% of the 220 Texas beaches, which is 180 beaches, they apparently did the crazy math there, uh, came back as potentially unsafe on at least one day on at least one day in 2020. Two of the worst spots were Cole Parks Beach in Corpus Christi and Sylvan Beach in Laporte. Or Laporte? Laporte? I don't know. Never been. With 60% of the days, it was tested deemed unsafe with fecal matter and contamination. So, when are you going to the beach? I bet this was written by somebody. <laughs> That's just disgusting. Or Florida. I mean, somebody else. I'm not a beach person by any means. I could care less about beaches, especially I've been to the Texas beaches. Nothing impressive there. But, my God. Like, literally shit in the water is just one of those things that's like... You not know fish? Yeah, but they're saying human shit. Like, not animal, not regular. That, that would be the same in every, every right. beach. Every, every water. Like, yeah. we're, all, we're all living beings. Well, apparently they water, tested so. all the beaches, and Texas has by far the most. Mm-hmm. So, it's obviously not every water. Okay. But, yeah. Pretty Biased. gross. So, for, so just letting you guys know, you know, the good news for you guys that are thinking about going into uh, going to the beach this summer. Uh, enjoy your Texas beach. Just close your mouth. What <laughs> what topic? <laughs> just close your mouth. What topic would you like? I don't to know. I'm supposed to follow with? up with that. I mean, <laughs> God, like end hey, with that. We're in the summertime. End I just with wanted that. To be don't a, start. Now it's on. like, well, there's the beginning of the show talking about poop. Oh, People need to done. plan. People need to plan. Right. No, you, I don't even know. Like, okay. Well, me off. You, you grab so, one. So let's start with uh, San Antonio, right? So San Antonio has, a, it's finally kicking off a $130 million plus development envisioned as Pearl on the east side. Everything is a Pearl. Every pearl time they on do the everything. Pearl oh, this is the pearl mini Pearl. This, like, my God, just do something different. But anyway. The 192-unit apartment complex marks just the first phase of $130 million mixed-use development intended to spur commercial and residential activity on the east side. So Miami-based developers um, building, building villas at Echo East, a $43 million apartment project on seven acres along Briggsdale Boulevard between East Commerce and Martin Luther King Drive. So this is just south of the AT&T Center and all of that. Um, That's a long way away from downtown to be the pearl of the east side. Well, it, well <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not the pearl because of its proximity to downtown. I guess it's just because, I mean, and, and it makes sense. You know, you think about it w- location-wise and everything, but it, it goes on to say uh, the George 
Gavin Youth Center with affiliate Eastside Pinnacle Group plans for the apartments to be the first phase of the large 20-acre mixed-use development with 500 residential units total. Now, the residential property, a partnership with the San Antonio Housing Trust, will have one, two, and three-bedroom units ranging from $834 to $1,156 per month in rent, scheduled for completion by 2020. So, my question to you, right? Oh, okay. So, the rents are between $834 and $1,156. Yes. That's it. Yes. So that, that was my, my thing, right? So we're looking at this as real estate investors, as everything that we bring up on this show. How does this affect you as a real estate investor? How does, what opportunities do you have? What can you seize? But when you're looking at this massive development being done in that area, which is, I believe it is needed because you're so close to AT&T Center, the Coliseum, all these things. That's like, yeah, you want, I mean, we all drive by there every time you go to a Spurs game and it's uh pretty ghetto to say the least right so it's like to revitalize that whole area makes sense but then you're looking at 834 to 1156 the max on rent um that's not by any means like a, like high end even like middle to me it's like yeah. it's like they're building for the area yeah it's like it's more of a dilap- dilapidated rundown kind of area so i mean it's more of affordable housing when i hear that it's like mm-hmm. especially when they're building with the san antonio housing trust because that's what it's designed for um it is like it's more for affordable housing and it's it's subsidized and it's like and now if those were in like the 15 1600s like okay now you're actually getting it up into something that, like i just don't know what you could have at the affordable housing rate to make it pearl like like the pearls Pearl's awesome for the fact that it's like they have a diverse entertainment district kind of thing. If they got bars, they got restaurants, they got all kinds of things. We're like this when I hear rents that low, I mean that's like that's well below the average rent in yeah. San Antonio, especially for like single family houses. I don't know what it's for apartments, but yeah. Or just kind of made so, that face when he said eleven fifty six. I agree. Well, because I looked at it, I was like, all right, that whole area, I mean, talk about opportunities, like damn near every single house there's ran down it's you know needs work the whole area just very neglected very distressed that's like all right cool this is technically usually when we see this kind of developments going on that revitalizes the area so for real estate investors looking at this okay this area is going to have low rent and everything but don't you think between because where it's located you're pretty much between denver heights and this area you know that's getting all this do you think that that kind of bleed over is going to help investors it's going to help maybe appreciate a lot of the homes in those areas appreciate some of the rents or do you think it's uh you know not very a good investment opportunity i mean any of it's if you buy it low enough because a lot of those houses are so dilapidated you can get pretty low but like um i mean i'm really kind of torn on it honestly because it's like, yes, the revitalization is nice because you see the development going in there and things are going to spur off of that. But it's also like, is it going to cater to the clientele of the area, the density of the area? Nice. So is it's like, you're not going to get, um, what's that Italian, like Italian restaurant? Uh, uh, Paisano's. It's like Pazano's isn't going to open up a strip, open up a strip. Well, Ruth Chris is not going to build right next to that. It's like, you're not going to get a lot of like higher end things that client 
yeah. know, to the higher end clientele, like the housing right there, you get the dignity Denver Heights. It's like, well, you have downtown right there. So you have some higher end things that those people that can afford that like to go to. But now over here, it's like, it's going to spur economic development, but of the lower tier of. Correct. Uh, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but it's not going to be your high end stuff for like four, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars houses. Yeah, it's not you, do you're so trying it's like- to be politically correct. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at that, it's it's pretty much you, you think about it to your point, right? What restaurants are going to open up there? What kind of food places? What kind of shops? And everything. If you're keeping pretty much, you're targeting very affordable, affordable, and all that. You're not going to have, like you're saying, your high-end restaurants, your your shopping places and all that. It's going to yeah. stay kind of like your fast food. It's going to stay, you know, w- w- because as as we keep seeing inflation, we're going to touch on this topic a little bit later on, with the biggest struggle restaurants and everybody's facing right now. But as we see inflation, we see all these things creeping up and causing big problems for restaurants. Like, yeah, I mean, this is, it's interesting. I'm very curious to see, kind of dig into it a little bit more as to see what economic impact they're seeing. And also, is this rent range more of um, a, a kind of like their sell pitch, you know, to get that kind of funding and the backing from the city? And then oh, when okay. they actually finish, it's like, well, look at what happened with the market. We're going to have to do rents higher. Look, the city, look how, yeah, that was what we could have done when you, but you didn't let us build this quick yeah. enough. So now values are higher. Everything's higher. It's like, we got to rent for a so higher point. Thanks for all but, the tax advantages. And here yeah, we go. Yeah, but now that they're like, but they're targeting it to begin with. Because I mean, I know like there's other apartment complexes that build it. It's like their lowest rent starts at like 1200 Yeah. In that, like not that area, but like towards the downtown area or in the Pearl, like in the Pearl, like yeah. you can find it like, God, I think I was looking at a, just to see, like, they have one of the towers there for rent. It was like $1,900 or $1,800 for like a night, like a 600 square foot studio. Yeah. In one of the buildings in the Pearl. Like, that's the kind of thing that, like, makes the Pearl. And there's a wait list. Yeah. And it's like, so it's it's something different. To add to this article is there's another article that this is something that I look at, you know, what is. What does this mean? What are kind of read between the lines? What does this mean, especially for that area? Is that the San Antonio Spurs are losing AT&T pretty much. So you have the AT&T Center, right? It's the name. AT&T is the one that's paying the bills, all that for that area. They're not renewing their contract. So the San Antonio Spurs and the AT&T are ending their professional relationship after uh, the telecommunication giant chose not to renew its present deal as the sponsor of the Alamo City venue currently bearing its name. So on July 2nd, uh, they pretty much said we are not renewing, which it expires at the at fall of 2022. But the company also recently sold 7.23% minority interest in the Spurs. So this is nothing... Um, Ominous? Fucking word. This is nothing ominous. <laughs> the source uh, told the front offices that it was just time. AT&T's priorities have changed. And it continues saying, AT&T has reportedly been looking for a cost-cutting measure in light of its deal to merge its Warner Media unit with Discovery, according to the San Antonio Express. Additionally, AT&T has a major commitment to another beloved Texas team, the Dallas Cowboys. The company pays close to $20 million each year for naming rights 
on the football team stadium in Arlington. So based on the Spurs' recent value of $1.8 billion, AT&T made an estimated $125 million from its original investment in the team, um, according to front office sports. So my question, my, my thought process here is like, you made a good amount of money. We're seeing all this growth in San Antonio, all this growth that we're seeing that's tremendous coming to the city, right? People moving in, money coming in, all of these things. Why now cut and run, right? Like why, what is AT&T looking at? Because, okay, I understand you have an opportunity in Dallas. I'm sure you can afford both. Well, it's not very, that they have an opportunity in Dallas. Like they already have Dallas. Like it costs them tons of money to put their name on those buildings. Yeah. And to where it's just like, like I said, twenty million just to do, put it on the Dallas Stadium. Where it's like I told you why. It's like, hey, we're looking for cost-cutting measures, and it really doesn't. But with the return that you're getting from the Spurs that you've been getting, they're paying two million a year for AT and T Center yeah. here in San Antonio, two million a year, and they've generated a hundred and twenty-eight million of profit from since they've got it. I think they've been there for no, twenty. That's years. just their stake in the Spurs. Yeah, from selling from what they paid for the Spurs, where they sold the Spurs, they got that return on just their interest in the Spurs, a seven percent. No, I understand, like, I but a- what I'm saying is that the team is gaining more value. You know, with all the people moving here, with everything, you have an uh, an NBA team in the city. It's it's pretty much the biggest sport in the city available. Sport, but yeah, but it's a it's a is. right. It's the biggest professional sport in the city. That's like with all the people moving and everything. Like I could definitely see ticket sales going up tremendously so it's like why why would you you know what i mean i don't know i, I was just curious like well, they don't they don't get revenue from ticket sales no but the it brings up values of the team and brings up value of their investment brings up yeah, all the values yeah. i mean i guess it's just like i mean they're playing big ball to where it's like look they got other things other places to where it's like they see better opportunity putting their name on a freaking stadium yeah or is it's like yeah so you, i'd always wonder like i'd like to see like what is your return Get from like throwing your name on one of those massive stages. and they're like, it's like, yeah, you just get a big billboard with like AT&T written across it. Like, how do you calculate your return on those well, how deals? Do you think, like, okay. So do you think that helps? So they have the AT&T center, right? You think, um, I guess subliminally to people, they see AT&T, AT&T, then they're going to go choose which network. And it's like, well, it seems like, AT&T is a safer bet to go with. I mean, that's what you're versus playing, that like, when you're that big. It's just like, do you think it, it, it's one of those, like I always talk about like um, names on billboards or things like that. It's like, it's ridiculously expensive to do that. And it's not like something like to where we like a small business does like, uh, they can barely scrimp by to put their name on a billboard. Yeah. It's just like, no, that's not where you do it. You're not going to get the return. You're going to go broke trying to maintain just that market thing. And you're not going to get the return from it. It's like it's like a, a thing where it's like you spend money on these things when you have nothing else to spend money on. Yeah. It's like, well, we got these big marketing budgets and things like that, and we've really kind of tapped out our returns on social media, uh, TV, and things like that. So, like, well, we just do these extra things now to get more, try to generate a little more from it. So, I've, I've always wondered about when it comes to, like, those big names, those big brands, like yeah. big-scale corporate marketing um, stuff, not stuff that, like, small businesses do. Like, how do your budgets work? Like, what do you guys see? Even like some of like these massive like ads you see that like a Super Bowl, it's like millions and millions and millions of dollars. Like they wouldn't spend that if unless they're thinking it's getting a return. But it's like, how do they track their return of spending $40 million on a 30 second 
Super Bowl ad. Well, you you obviously see the spike, right? Like, I mean, a, a Super Bowl ad. Uh, you know, we both listen to the um, Gary Vaynerchuk, and he's big in the marketing space. He's big in all that area, and he talks about like Super Bowl ads are the most undervalued assets because they're still so cheap relative to how many eyeballs you yeah. get for that message, right? So for that 30 second ad, yeah, you're probably spending $5 million, but you're getting millions of eyeballs on that. And along, not just during the Super Bowl, but like the Super Bowl commercials are by far the biggest thing. So people are watching, rewatching them on YouTube. Yeah. There are people that miss them. They're playing them on or the news stuck, later. Stuck in their head for years later, like puppy monkey baby. Like, I still remember that one from, like, God, what was that? Oh, like, Mountain six, Dew, wasn't yeah, it? it was yeah, Mountain Dew or somebody. I don't know. Like, that yeah. was just creepy. It was, it was like, <laughs> what the hey, hell are we watching? It worked. I yeah. was like, puppy monkey. But, puppy monkey. You're like, oh, my God. I think the next year they followed up with it, too, with uh, another one. So Yeah, but I was reading a comment here that Brian made a good point, and he says probably 20 to 30% has to be in the target range, referring to the um, housing that they're developing on the east side. So we've seen that before where they're saying, all right, look, yes, you're going to build affordable housing, and it needs to be a certain percentage of the total development that needs to go to affordable housing. You know what I mean? So it's it's something that's like it needs to um, it needs to be more of what percentage goes directly to that to affordable housing to all of those things. Um, so that, I think yeah, that's an excellent point, Brian. I, I think that's uh, it's going to be something to look into a little bit more and kind of see what are all the terms because if they can't bring in high end lifestyles high-end, you know, um, apartments and housing and all that, it's going to be hard to bring in high-end or, or any kind of retail because as retail and all these things go up, like, you know, and I mean, we can get into that, the restaurant topic, or do you want to stay in the real estate side? Uh, we can stay in the, oh, hmm. Well, let's t keep the real, because it ties right into it. Go ahead and do the restaurant one, and then we'll jump okay. back to real estate from it. Because like, it, it is important to where, like, what is that area going to do? What is it going to spur? What kind of development is it going to be? Because I think restaurants, like, in these next couple of years, like, restaurants, the way we used to think of restaurants, going to drastically change yeah. uh, to what we were used to seeing as far as, like, pricing and stuff go for. I think that's going to have a big factor on that area. If, like, wages and restaurants go so high, it's like... You got to think of the demographic that's going to move in to where, like, Brian's point, like, if it is only a percentage of that, uh, great. But the way they wrote that article, when I've seen these articles come out, they usually say this many mm -hmm. percentage of it is in this price range, and then the rest is they leave it open, open so they can do whatever they want. But they're saying, no, like, this one, like, the whole target is that price range. Yeah. So that is something to me. It is like, so what exactly are they going to? are they going to do with uh, that area? So, I mean, I th regardless, I think it's going to be good for it because I know in that area, it's like, yeah, it's probably just some vacant land with some really rundown, like industrial commercial complex thing. That's oh, yeah, for sure. falling down. So it's I mean, it, good it's for just, it, but how far is it going to go? We will see more complaints and everything as far as uh, gentrification and all of that. Cause of course you're going to be re redeveloping those areas. Even at the bare minimum, it's still going to raise home values. You know, even those home values that have not moved in decades, they're going to start going up. I mean, because it's just like <laughs> you can't have brand new development, all that coming in and it not go anywhere. So, um, yeah, very interesting to see what that looks like. But touching on the on the restaurant topic. So you have uh, Kraft Haynes CEO 
said that his company is very concerned about the drastic rise in inflation and looking at the possibility of increasing prices for consumers. You can almost guarantee that every restaurant owner in the country is facing the same difficult choices. Think about it. If inflation continues to increase, the cost of raw ingredients and supplies will continue to increase right along with it. It's only a matter of time before restaurants further increase their prices to consumers. The fact that labor shortage uh, shortage is also forcing many businesses to raise wages to court the dwindling supply of potential employees all but guarantees a call-out choice, raise prices at the counters, or potentially go out of business. But inflation, quote, printing money, <laughs> doesn't just rise the uh, raise the cost of food, it devalues the dollar, a hidden tax on everyone as it raises the cost of everything. As the families are faced with increasing costs of utility bills, groceries, gas, and household essentials, they will be increasingly less likely to spend on extras. All of this is particularly tough for the pizza delivery business model. Imagine you own a pizzeria. Not only are the costs of your raw ingredients rising from flour and salt to tomatoes and mozzarella, but gas is more expensive too as our employees. On top of that, inflation starts to wallop your customers. Yeah, wallop your customers. And those families that order at least once a week start ordering every other week and then just once a month. So this article is actually a very extensive article. And you can definitely see where this guy goes because he even got into politics in the article. He's, I mean, it, it was an interesting... He, he went deep, huh? Yeah. And I honestly don't disagree with a lot of the things he said because it's all based on, you know, what could happen in certain situations. Uh, so I do recommend you guys uh, go check out this article and all the links, everything are going to be provided below. Once the, um, the episode is over, we're going to add all the links and everything so you can check that out. But that being said, I mean you're looking at everything he is saying and yeah i mean it's it's getting very tough for even like he says even as simple as a pizzeria you know you're yeah. delivering pizza but yeah your material your ingredients all your things are going up now you know you have gas prices going up which we're going to touch on you have employee costs going up you have all these things going up how are you not going to increase the price of the pizzas right and then you increase the price of the pizzas and you have people that are getting hit by what he calls a hidden tax, which inflation has always been called a hidden tax. Yeah. And I think it's very accurately put that it's like, well, now everything has gone up for them where it's like, yeah, we're probably just going to get a, uh, you know, we're not going to get delivery. We'll get the journal. <laughs> They're going to go to your supermarket, bet them, get that freezer pizza, and that's going to be the next best thing. So, yeah. I mean, what well, do I you mean, think? Well, I mean, to tie it back, tie it back to this topic, or I mean, that side of the part um, we were talking about earlier, is like, so what kind of restaurants are going to appear there? It's like, it's not going to be your go out to eat or your pizza delivery. It's like, it's going to be continue your McDonald's or your Taco Bells. It's going to be your, more your fast food to where it's like, the clientele of that area can afford or over on that side. So, I mean, it is going to spur development, but it's like, what kind of development, how high is it going to go? So I think it's going to be a great uh, rental market because like Denver Heights 
big new he's like those aren't rental markets anymore the values of the homes are way yeah. too high the rents aren't there it's it's just it's useless well, not useless but it's like you're, you're not going to get cash flow from it in traditional rental space but I think this area is going to transition into a good kind of blue collar kind of working area, which is needed downtown. You can't push everyone out from downtown because like you still need uh, that style of worker in the downtown area. So the further out they go, the more high price increase. We've covered that in depth in previous topics. But I think on that side, it's it, it's good to see that development go on that sound, that side of town to see that kind of development where you can have that kind of workforce in that area. So, I mean, it is something as far as like a rental play to where like, if you can buy things, it's going to get an initial boost uh, for rents. Cause now people do want to live in houses versus apartment complexes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is going to read uh, redevelop that hard. Jeez. Um, it is going to d- develop that area to where like if yeah. your cash, more cash flow style rental plays that we ourselves target, I think is going to kind of, into that area. So uh, I wanted to see, uh, there's some comments in here. Uh, Marlon Brimmer, he puts on that this is temporary inflation. We just got out of a pandemic and increasing the price of pizza by 50 cents. Life isn't over. Pay your workers a living wage. So we actually did cover this on a previous episode about whether this inflation is transitionary, how, you know, uh, the Fed is calling it and other people are calling it. Versus something that's a little bit more consistent, you know, something that's going to linger. And we covered a lot of data points and everything um, on why it seems like it's not so transitionary. It's not so uh, temporary because there's a lot of big factors playing in here that, yes, the the economy is kind of getting back to working and everything, but it's not the same economy as before. So even though like... Yeah, like we saw lumber prices shoot through the moon, right? Yeah, lumber prices are going to come back down, but they're not going to come down to the last lows, right? Or to the last normals. Like, they're probably going to be somewhere in the middle from the crazy well, high to the crazy low. And it's one of those low. things, like, uh, the come back to the real estate side of things, it's like one of the big factors of the core inflation numbers is the cost of housing. Yeah. So, yes, energy prices, food prices, all that stuff is all over the place, and that should settle down once you kind of work those kinks out and things like like the real estate prices, those are much, much, much different. Where uh, commercial real estate data company Yardy Matrix has updated its multifamily rent forecast for 2021 with several markets receiving an upward revision in expected rental rate growth. The vaccine rollout was going so much faster than we we expected or were expecting, said Andrew Simmons, senior research analyst at Yardy Matrix. In March or April, a lot of these markets responded largely to that, starting seeing very big increases. Some of the biggest increases could be felt in secondary markets not captured in reports. Boise, Idaho, Reno, Nevada, and Portland, Maine are some of the metros areas seeing fast population growth coupled with constrained supply. Boise, for example, saw 11.6% rental rate growth in the first quarter of 2021, compared to the same time last year. Yardy Matrix predicts for Boise in Q3 and Q4 are 10.7 and 9.6. Leave oh, like 10% year-over-year rent increases. Um, Reno posted a 5.3 year-over-year rent increase in Q1 and 7.9% growth is projected in Q3 and Q4. A shift to more remote work is helping propel growth in smaller cities, Sim said. Simmons said, what should be transitionary inflation in certain sectors due to logistics and pandemic-related supply chain issues is now threatening to be much broader and could have a real impact on purchasing power, which would limit the ability to push further rent increases. 
Mm-hmm. So to where like his point where, yes, a lot of the stuff is transitionary, but it, the thing is like right now, it's like you look at like construction work, like there's a massive demand for housing and there isn't housing. And you look at the, the regulatory burden and building properties, how long it takes from I'm buying that property to where somebody can move in and can actually live. It is so long that it takes so long to catch back up for this demand and housing across the entire nation for supply and demand, it's going to push prices up. And when that rent price is so much of the core inflation numbers, mm-hmm. that is something that can really bog down into quote unquote, the inflation really start taking real bites out of uh people's bottom pockets. And then yeah. it comes back to the living wage aspect of it. it's like what well, cost of housing is so high to where they have to increase wages for people to be able to afford that area, which trickles down into your food costs and price. And and that's something that, you know, we've covered previously and what we try to show with this. It's not, you know, to, to Marlon's point, you know, it's not the end of the world, of course. And it's not, you know, something for you to, freak out about like everything life's ending it's not to that extreme that being said like everything is tied to everything else right just because one area is getting hit doesn't mean that the other ones are going to be affected so as you see all of these areas get affected in different ways it's going to trickle and it's going to hit other areas because you know high rents causes people like the like the uh the owner of Heinz like he was saying you know People's cost of living is going up. Rents are not going to come back down to pre-pandemic level. Home prices are not going to come back down to pre-pandemic level. So these are real expenses that people are having, you know, and they're going to keep having. And wages, when you start increasing wages to, let's say, like he says, you know, pay people uh, a living wage. Well, when you increase wages from, let's say, a pizzeria that usually pays, what, $9 an hour, if that, right, to now $15, Sixteen dollars, like it's not going to be a fifteen, uh, fifty cent increase on a pizza. It's going to be substantially more. It's going to be probably a couple dollars, if not more, on a pizza. And then you add that to the cost of everything. And uh, ordering a pizza, ordering out, is just an extra. It's not a necessity. So those are things that people start cutting out. Um, and another article that kind of piggybacked on all that to kind of just show how everything connects is that is. Restaurants pushing digital orders in the labor shortage could mean diners asking for more food because they don't feel judged by the servers. So this was a a funny article. So restaurants are rolling out ways for consumers, uh, for customers to order digitally, which could lead to to diners placing no to diners placing bigger orders because they can hide their embarrassment from servers one expert says when uh customers order digitally rather than through a server they're more likely to choose the food they really want um said uh Deepai, the global director of product and marketing at a advertising agency and he says that this is because they don't have to worry about the servers judging them. People order more, um, order more, and the tables turn over faster because they can get their orders and they can get their bills much sooner. During the pandemic, restaurants have been pushing dine-in customers 
to order using apps or QR codes printed on the menus or glued on the table. Starbucks is encouraging customers to order in advance on their phones for drinks to go while Taco Bell is pushing digital kiosks and is even rolling out a new restaurant format based on mobile ordering. As mobile and drive-through sales soared during the pandemic, Starbucks customers placed fewer orders, but they were more expensive, uh, said an insider, apparently. Uh, this is this is down to a mix of customers placing bigger orders and getting more modifications. Even before the pandemic, rising wages in the restaurant industry meant that chains like McDonald's had been turning to kiosk ordering to keep down the staff costs. A lawyer specializing in retail at Robinson Solomon and whatever that company is. And restaurants are currently scrambling to find workers amid a huge labor shortage across the U.S., which could make digital ways of ordering, like through apps, kiosks, and QR codes, even more attractive. So looking at this, right, this is what we talk about, it, what restaurants need to do in order to keep their costs down, is they're going to need to create more automation. They're going to need to create ways that they can systemize and, and lower their employee count, because if not, they have to raise food costs. And if they have to raise food costs, it makes it even harder for people to consume, which makes it harder for the restaurant industry. So it's something that everything ties to itself. Everything is tied together. If restaurants are right now, especially these fast food, fast food chains that we talked about it before, like Pizza Hut, Domino's, McDonald's, they pretty much have like kind of like a conveyor belt system set up. Oh, I on remember how the like as a kid going up. to McDonald's and how many people were working in the back. The people were just like crawling over each other back there. I mean, yeah. just making burgers, flipping stuff, going crazy. Now it's like maybe half the people, if less, in some of those restaurants yeah. uh, that are there working. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, and you, and you look at it, you know, not just in restaurants, but how many times have we gone to Home Depot or, or even if you go to like Walmart and stuff, they all encourage you to use their apps to find stuff on the shelves, to use their apps. Like Sam's Club, you can even use the app to scan and go. Like you can go shopping, scanning all your items. Really? And then you yeah. can just walk out. Well, you don't have to saying. go to the register. Home Depot the other day, or I mean, you look at HEB even, or restaurants or uh, grocery stores where like the kiosks there were used to have like two people to do their own um, checkout. So you had an employee scanning and a person bagging. To where now it's like, well, you have a lot of people that are only getting like 10, 12 items because of like how fast they come in and out and stuff like that in these grocery stores where they can have one employee watch that one section of four kiosks. Mm. So I'm like when I go to, especially like a Home Depot, it's like usually people aren't buying hundreds of materials like they do at a grocery store. Yeah. It's like they're going in, they're buying a small, a few things and they're big items. You're not you would usually even putting those in sacks to where like one person can look after like four to eight kiosks. Yeah. in that area so instead of having eight employees you're down to one yeah. or um even like heb same thing where you walk in some of these big grocery stores it's one employee that's looking over like 10 self-checkout kiosks yeah uh in like one section or it's like yeah because and i have an heb five like not even like three minutes from my house mm -hmm. or it's like i drive to it like if i just realize like hey i just need to go get uh butter or something like that it's like i just walk in grab that one item and out and go because it's so convenient and so close yeah and like i enjoy the self-service kiosk because i don't have to wait in line for like somebody's got 20 items in front of me or 50 items and i just get i just have one item that i need to scan but i gotta wait 30 minutes just to make through the checkout line or now it's like i just go through this express lane and i'm out yeah, and they want to pay with a check
Um, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. happened to me that day. I was like, oh my God, lady, come on. But that being said, like he, he, um, Marlon continues, he says, uh, equity firms are buying all of the single family homes. Regular people can't compete with cash buyers. We need more regulation on these huge firms snatching up properties. We're going to become a renter nation. So yes, I agree with you that um, equity firms are snatching up a lot of the residential real estate and everything in the market. And it, it is insane, the amount that they're buying. That being said, I'm always a little wary with when it comes down to regulation because regulation tends to over-regulate, right? Where what would help, I think, more is if they were to, let's say, deregulate a lot of what we talked about before, a lot of the building process, so then we can drop more property, more inventory on the market. Yeah. And then by dropping more inventory, more properties well, on the market, it's going to make it more affordable for well, people let's to look buy. At, let's look at why... Um Let's look at why people are, why equity firms are buying these properties. Yeah. It's because home values are increasing at such a rapid rate. Rental prices are increasing at such a rapid rate. So they see great returns in real estate. And like, why? It's like, because there's such a huge demand for it by the general public that it's like, they're not buying, bidding each other's prices up. It's like, no, the general public is driving these equity firms into this market to buy it because prices are increasing so much because we as builders can't supply the market. It's like, I bought a lot that already had a slab. It should really just be able to buy it. And within three months, have that thing up for sale, done over with closed on the way. Yeah. Like, but it took me four months just to get through the permitting process. So now it's just like, I can't supply the market. And it's like, and that's not, we're not one-off stories either. No. So we're like, you talk big commercial developments. I mean, the process that these people can get roped into just takes forever. So it's like, I, 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 I mean, and I'd be curious to see the numbers as far as like equity firms, like how much they actually are buying. Cause like, I, I hear about it in news, but I don't hear about it in the actual real estate community. I don't hear about, I mean, I did hear like a lot of private equity firms buying these things back in 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, but they really kind of died off around 15, 16 because like the returns weren't there anymore. Yeah. So, so I'd be curious to see like what the actual true numbers are uh, around that. Um, yeah. And and we really do appreciate your comments, Marlon. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, that That's the whole point of this is, you know, to create more of a discourse and conversation and back and forth. So we can all be more educated. We can all protect ourselves and our families and help the community as much as we can. But with that being said, uh, you did have an article that I was interested in that you it says uh, mortgage applications are sinking. So what's what happened with that one? Uh, well, I got several that kind of tie into each other. So let, let's start with um, going back, uh, when did I do this? It was a month ago. Of uh, Home buyers are growing weary of the housing market. This, one's, this is a little short article, but it kind of ties into it. The, the latest Fannie Mae home purchase sentiment index shows that just 35% of consumers believe now is a good time to buy a home, down from 47% in April. And those who believe it is a bad time to be a home buyer increased to 56% from 48%. Consumers appear to be acutely aware of higher home prices and the low supply of homes, the two reasons cited most frequently for the particular sentiment said Doug Duncan, Senior Vice President of Chief Economist at Fannie Mae. So that was a um, month ago. Now you move over to uh, the mortgage applications. Mortgage demand, and this is from, I think, the same publication. Um, mortgage demand fell for the second week in a row as low inventory and high home prices continue to weigh on the housing market. 
Mortgage applications decreased 1.8% last week, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association Seasonally Adjusted Index, falling to the lowest level since the beginning of 2020. So that's what's crazy. Like mortgage applications are even lower now than pre-pandemic, even though we were still like a hot market then. Mortgage applications to refinance a home dropped 2% for the week and were 8% lower than a year ago. Refinance applications have trended lower than 2020 levels for the past four months. Home purchase applications dropped 1% for the week and came in 14% lower than a year ago. Mm-hmm. So you think now we're getting into the time where a lot of these articles compared to one year ago when this whole boom started, like that's when it really started. July was really when things really started to change when you look at the data um, of <clears throat> when home prices really started to increase. Yeah. So now it's going to be interesting to see like, are we slowing down or are we speeding up and things? So a lot of this information is coming in. It's like, hey, uh, from when this whole thing started, we're not still increasing. Like we're actually slowing down. So you got the spike or on the backside of the spike, even though year over year things are started still increasing. So it's going to be interesting to see how the year over year changes because I think is it going to be a one-time blip that, hey, we're seeing double-digit year-over-year price increases now that we're starting to get into when this whole thing started, or is it going to continue to rise? So that's stuff with uh, the market reports that I'm interested to see, and I mentioned that in the last one we dropped, uh, was last week? Yeah, right before the 4th of July? Yeah. Um, we dropped the market report where I mentioned it in there. Like, I'm curious to see what this data is going to look like once we get into the boom times and out of the end of the pandemic, because of course you look at April over April, we're going to have a huge increases because like, or April and May, because that's when prices were depressed the most or when home buying depressed the most. So mortgage applications um, are falling. So that's something to continue to watch to see, does it pick up and what really happens? Because I know there's some stuff in uh, the financial news this week. Um, but the 10-year treasury starting to slide a little bit, which ties closely to, not closely, but loosely to uh, mortgage applications and things like that, or mortgage and interest rates. So, Yeah. And what, what are your thoughts and on it? I mean, yeah, all, all of these things are huge plays on what's going on in the market, why people are starting to kind of, a lot of buyers are starting to, into, you know, Marlon's point, a lot of people are starting to cool off. A lot of people can't afford, can't compete, you know, and even with the whole refinance and everything, it might show that it's just people are, I'm curious as to, is it that people just don't qualify, you know, because the people that are either uh, continue to be unemployed or underemployed. And this is something that I've talked way before the pandemic about is that we used to brag about the low unemployment numbers. But to me, I was like, we still have a large population of the employed that are severely underemployed that they're not making living wages. They're, they're having to have one or two jobs or a lot of the, even the younger people that were still living with their parents because they couldn't make a, a wage to sustain themselves. So that was pre-pandemic. You know, now we're starting to see wages rise. We're starting to see all these things rise, but it's going to take some time for all this because as wages are rising, they're not rising as quickly as home prices are. You know, they're not rising to that level. So it's like, I think as we see all the people that kind of like jumped on the market that had that influx of money that were making those moves, everything, I think we've seen a lot of that come through. And I think we're starting to see that kind of like cool off a little bit. And the people that are kind of left are still struggling because they're not really able to afford um, all of these things. And then, you know, one thing that uh, Marlon finished off with is that Deregulation equals the condo that collapsed in Florida. Hey, podcast. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to get very exclusive insider tips and strategies that nobody else is getting, then you need to join our text community by texting podcast to 210-794-9898. That's 210-794-9898. Text the word podcast and you will start receiving insider information Things that are happening that we're realizing that we're implementing in real time that other people have no access to. So make sure you text us now. Now back to this show. That is not what I mean by deregulation. I, what I mean is, and I, I linked below an article that we talked about, um, an episode that we did on the affordability issue, and especially in San Antonio. And it's not deregulating the building process. I never encourage that. I've never said that, you know, you shouldn't, I'm not saying deregulate the building process. What we're talking about is the bureaucracy prior to the building process. You know what I mean? That Like we talked about the permitting, the, you know, the issue that we had, that we had to wait six weeks, even though they had given us the answer like day one, but they're like, oh, you got to wait six weeks for the board to, to convene. And it's like, but you're, you guys are the board and you're telling me that we're good to go. Why do I still got to wait six weeks? Yeah. You know, and then the six weeks, the cost, the delays, all these things, like they hurt the builders. It, it's something yeah. that's tremendously hurting builders and everything. And we saw when we built the house in Seguin that one house, just the permits were like 10 grand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, this is insane. To ju- it's not we're not talking about the actual building of it that it's, 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 you it's, should it's, have. it's the streamline of it because like once like you're past like yeah. once i'm through the permitting process like oh you can really put up a house like it's amazing like how fast buildings get built when you're like you drive away and you come back two months later like my god that building got there fast like holy crap yeah. it's like but it's it's the the pre-development i guess is the terms behind it uh to where it's like this department doesn't talk to that department, doesn't talk to that department, doesn't talk to this department. Mm-hmm. Well, this department makes you do something, you do something, but then that other department over there says, well, now that you did that, you can't do this. Yeah. And then it's just like, oh my God, like, is there just like a, it, it's a very vague uh, way that it goes through the regulatory process to get the okay to build. Yeah. So where it's like, I we took a, a house, a lot. Like cement was already there. The house is already built. This the whole subdivision had already gone through the regulatory process of being built. And it's like, I'm trying to build the exact same house right on top of what was there. Yeah. And because of that, it's like, oh, because of the zoning codes changed in the eighties. Now this is non-conforming to it. And it's just like, you obviously, it, it was built here this way. Like you, the city of San Antonio approved this building in 1981. And it's like, here we are 40 years later. I'm trying to put the same thing there. Like what is wrong? And then with that, that's yeah. where it just like you couldn't get answers. You couldn't get anything. And it's like that's what became so frustrating. So that's the portion we talk about deregulating. It's not going skimpy on uh, the engineering because like what happened with the condo collapse is like it was um, an issue with a lot of it was it came around a reg- not regulation, but it was the inefficiency of regulation. They were trying to make these repairs. There was multiple reports coming out of like why this thing cost like years ago, like you need to do modifications to this building. It needs to be done. But then like, because of the condo associations, people didn't want to raise their money. You had too many people not making the decisions. Yeah. And because of the, the regulatory laws in place, it didn't get repaired and the building collapsed. So those are the things we're talking about. Like deregulating is that aspect of it, of just like getting things done that need to be done in an efficient 
and speedy manner. Yeah, that's what we're referring to. Well, and like that, that's like exactly. Life. I mean, I think that's that's an excellent point because that's exactly what happens. And I interviewed Seth Teal, and that interview is also on the on our channel. You guys can check it out. But Seth Teal, he's uh, a uh, owns a realty here. He's a broker. He's a developer. He's an investor here in San Antonio, and he joined the boards because of all these issues. And his hopes was that he can join the board and help this situation, help make this much easier process and everything. One thing that he realized, and he even said it, he's like, they know what the problems are. They just don't care, and nor do they want to fix it. Because the the nickel and diming that they're doing is like, they're making a lot of money off of that. So they're like, they'd rather do that than make the process smoother and better. But it's like, like you and I have said countless times, like, look. Whatever the nickel and diamond you want to do, we'll pay you all that up front. You know, just let don't kill the time. Because yeah. for builder, builders and developers, time hurts. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you delay our project, it costs us more money. It hurts us with our labor because we have people lined up and now we got to delay. We got to postpone. They go find other jobs. Yeah. And then for us to get them back to our project is going to take some time. And then we're sitting on this project. And the more we sit, the more we spend, the higher the cost of that property is going to go. Yeah. And then the only people that are getting benefits are these massive developments right? That they're getting these uh, government helps and these uh, tax breaks and all these things for the stuff they're doing. But they're not able, we go back to what he was saying about, you know, it's all these big companies are buying up all the real estate. Well, it's like, well, that's who the city helps. Yeah, they, they, they don't they have help the connections. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know the, the, the council people of uh, San Antonio that approve these things. Big developers do though. Yeah, for they sure. They contribute to co political campaigns. Like, hey, remember I contributed to a political campaign? This is that favor I called in for you. Uh, that's why you have that money. So yeah, that so, is um, something and, that is interesting. Yeah, and um, but, but one thing. Go ahead. I mean, just on this topic, I was going to do one more of yeah. uh, real estate topics, and we can move on to others. Um, so Fannie Mae comes out and uh, says sellers still thriving as home prices stay high. Sales rejoice roughly 77% of res uh, sellers rejoice roughly 77% of responders to Fannie Mae's home purchase sentiment index, a composite index designed to track the housing market and consumer confidence to sell or buy a home said now is a good time to sell. That's up six from 67% for the month prior. So you have that's a big number. 77% of people are like, yeah, now's a great time to sell. To boot, a reporter reported 64% of survey respondents said it's a bad time to buy a home, up from 56% last month. So we want to talk about the supply and demand thing. It's like you're getting to that point where people are just like, yeah, everyone wants to sell. And people, buyers are like, I don't want to buy anymore mm -hmm. because prices are getting too high. Or let's say the mortgage payments are getting too high. The percent of respondents who say home prices will go up in the next 12 months increased one percentage point to 48%, and the percentage who say home prices will go down also increased to 21%. So you have people, it's a, both sides of people are increasing of saying like, prices are gonna go up or prices are gonna go down. Within the last, within the past almost three months, the aforementioned mortgage rates have only peaked above 3% one time coming in at 2.98%. So I had to read that the second time. Like, so when they say peaked, it means drop below 2.98% interest rate. In the most recent Mortgage Bank Association report, the percentage of respondents who believe mortgage rates will go down in the next 12 months remained unchanged at 6%. And the percentage who expect mortgage rates to go up increased from 49% to 57%. 
57% of people think mortgage rates are going to be going up and only 6 say they're going to 6% say they're going to go down. Mm. A share who think mortgage rates will stay the same decrease from 38% to 30%. There's a pretty wide sentiment that it's like hey always said it prices can't go on forever like yeah. they can't continue to rise 10 20 40 or austin 40 percent year over year like for long periods of yeah, time at some point people are going to be like, like all right we're done we're <laughs> done down. and i mean that's that's your supply and demand aspect of it where you have moving populations you have people moving to certain areas eventually the area gets so expensive they don't want to live there anymore look at california yeah. 80s was california is a place to be lots of opportunities 70s where everyone would be but now prices have gotten so high and things have gotten so expensive that everyone's like mm, I'm going to look for somewhere else to live. Yeah. And that was happening before the whole pandemic. And that kind of just like supercharged it uh, with all the remote work and stuff. So now moving these lower cost areas, prices are getting insanely high to now where people say is a great time to sell. People are now saying they don't want to buy and people are saying mortgage rates are going to increase. That's even if they do or don't, it's like it's weighing on the consumer, the people that actually pay the money and put their Money so down. so I think that's an excellent point to hit on is that whether and these are this is the reason why we're having these conversations because whether these things happen or not that fear that it may happen that anticipation that it may happen is what drives the market and sometimes actually makes them happen because it's it's kind of the same like you know the fed comes out and they're going to you know they all of a sudden they say Oh, yeah, we're going to raise interest rates. And then you don't see the stock market really budge all that much. And you're like, why the hell didn't the stock market move? Because they had already priced it in. They anticipated this happening. Yeah. Right. When is it a shock is when they're anticipating interest rates going up and the Fed comes out. They're like, yeah, no, we are not raising interest rate. Now you'll see something in the stock market that's going to be like, oh, shit, what happened? Oh, I mean, this yeah, is it's, unexpected. It's, those are the things that move the market. Exactly. When, like, something goes the opposite direction. And that's why like, you read articles about like the Fed notes and Fed minutes and things like that. And there's it's like. He's very careful with his words because yeah. he has to be. Because like you like the one word difference to where like me and you, I'm like, to me that means the exact same thing. But like, oh no, the markets took that as like his his the word he chose was so particular. It's like yep. I hate to be the person that has to write those. Like God, he like, scratched <laughs> his nose. <laughs> it's like you got to put a poll. I was like, all right, here's ten words to describe this. Which one out uh, to different people does it mean different things? And they got to pick in between. They're like. My God, like yeah. that would be a, just a well. I mean, I, I used to trade stocks before I really got into real estate, and one of the things I used to trade on because it was day trading, and is really on whenever the Fed would come out, it was pretty much betting on what they were gonna say. You know what I mean? So one of the things that I made a lot of money on was on the rise of silver, because at the time this was. 2010. So at the time, it was, you know, a shitty economy that we were in and everything. And then the Fed would come out with some crazy ass news. And all of a sudden, the market would tank again and silver and gold would shoot up, you know, and it was all based on whatever the hell. If, if Bernanke at the time, the head of the Fed, would get up and say, you know what? I stubbed my toe coming out of bed. Boom, market tanks. You know what I mean? Nothing to do with the market. And I think yeah. they, they understand that. They manipulate it by what they say. They're very yeah. careful with what they say. Um, I don't know how we got into that tangent, but, you know, it's... Uh, oh, you got into that tangent? Very, very interesting. That. <laughs> That's so, very interesting, though. Like, there's yeah. a great book I read one time. It's called uh, How How Money Became Dangerous. Mm. And, it, and it it goes over the process of like how investment banking went from private equity people that owned it and when it became public 
stock like publicly traded companies like how like people like they bet with money that's not theirs so it makes it much more dangerous to where like he goes over onto the trading floor like how people reacted and did different things like it's like the whole psychology around that. And it's a very interesting book. Um, if uh, somebody wants to check it out, I mean, we'll add a, a link to it below. It's a, it's a good book. Well, uh, but yeah. And one of the, the topics that we wanted to make sure that we hit is uh, it's pretty much, you know, the biggest difference with all of this, why we cover all these topics, why we cover everything is Robert Kiyosaki always talks about, you know, the, the uh, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He talks about the rich don't work for money. And with this whole concept of the rich don't work for money, a lot of people always shrug it off as like, yeah, it's easy for you to say because you're rich and all that. And it talks about the money habits. It talks about the way that you look at a business, the way you look at investing. And this is, I think, an issue that a lot of investors, a lot of people are missing because they're being so transactional that they're not focused on building something that's going to actually sustain and actually building a business. You know, and it's always been said with this uh, analogy that it's, uh, it's like planting a seed and then going the next day trying to eat it. You know what I mean? It's like you plant a seed, you got to nurture it, you got to take care of it, you got to let it grow. But the problem is like people jump into a business, jump into real estate because they're like, oh, I'm going to make money, I'm going to crush it my first year. Look, look at this guy, he made, you know, 100, 200 grand well, I mean, it's in not their just first year. It's not just real estate too. I mean, it is like stock market. It's anything where it's like- yeah. You just like if you just put some money in the stock market and you let it ride for a long period of time, just like real estate, you're gonna be far better off than if you just like I'm trying to make these base hits to get super rich really quick. Yeah, like it, well, that doesn't work that way. Patience is is a true virtue when it comes to making money and building wealth. And the and the thing that you and I have talked about oh, so many times is that. If you don't have the patience, and this is going to go into pretty much like three big ideas that we want to share with you on this. And with the first one being is why you shouldn't quit your job to go into becoming a real estate investor, right? This we hear all the time, especially the bigger pocket crowd and everybody. Every time somebody says, even on Facebook, I'm going to quit my job and go full time. Everybody's like, oh my God, yay. And I look at him, I'm like, oh my God, you're an idiot. Like, like beyond an idiot, you haven't even done anything yet. Yeah. Yet you are sacrificing pretty much like that one thing that you have that is consistent for something that you don't even know if you're going to succeed at. And getting your real estate license does not constitute. Well, oh, I got my real estate license. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, it's having a client base. It's the knowledge around what yeah. it like. By getting a real estate license does not act. You don't know how to do real estate. It's like, it means you can pass a test. You yeah. can memorize the information. You can go pass a test. That's all that means. When it comes to getting your license, like that's, that's, that's the first step. You're in the right direction. But just because you got your real estate license doesn't mean you should go quit your job because you're not going to start making commissions. Like no. you're not going to start making 50 grand, 70 grand, a hundred grand your first year, just because you got your license. Nobody shows up with a list of clients and says like, I'm ready to list my house. Like very competitive market where like you need to build that business and that reputation and those habits. And you need to understand the knowledge around that. And like getting your license doesn't teach you that. Well, and how high is the turnover in real estate, right? I mean, we've seen it since we've been in this. How many people start, they're all gung-ho, right? We're going to crush it. We're going to kill it. Oh, I'm so motivated. I'm so happy. I'm so excited. Look at this. Look at that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Until they actually start doing 
what they need to be doing because they're starting from ground zero. And guess what? From ground zero requires you to do all the shitty work that many people do not like to do. You know, all the cold calling, door knocking, getting cursed at, getting rejected, you know, all the headaches, all the crap that people don't want to deal with. And as soon as they start hitting that, all of a sudden, well, you know, I, I needed to take a break and I needed to do this and I needed to do that. And I, and I can't, and then it's like, all right, yeah, you're not going to last. You understand? Because this is not going to get easier. The more you grow in this business, the more stressful it's going to be. So if you can't embrace the stress and kind of like I like to say, if you can't embrace the suck, uh, I don't know where I heard it, but I love the, the phrase of it. it it's going to become, you're not going to last. No. And then you're saying, oh, let me quit my job. Something that's actually providing me the income to sustain my life, to eat, to yeah. survive, to go after something that after you start doing it, like, man, I, I see these people and I was like, man, you're really kind of screwed right now because you quit a great job. You quit whatever you had to come after something that now you hate doing. Yeah. So it's one of those things that's like, you got to be very smart. You got to think about it. You need to think about like, how are you going to survive? You know, I did a whole episode and I'm going to link it before. It's called Before You Quit Your Job for Real Estate Investing. And it covers like what you need to look at because you need, if you're going to do it, do you have reserves to last you, I don't know, a year? You know what I mean? Like it takes care of not just your living expenses, but your marketing your real estate business because it costs money to do. Well, and it's also, it's like you need to understand the financing of real estate mm -hmm. too. It's like you need a W-2 income to qualify for loans. Like real, unless you're paying cash for stuff and then it only goes so far or you plan on using commercial, lo uh, commercial loans and stuff like that, which are not your 30-year fixed rate, 3% yep. interest loans. Like, no, they're like 20-year 20 and you have five-year arms and four and a half to five and a half percent interest rates. So yeah. it's like you got a whole different level of competition and uh, financing style that your general public does not understand yeah. or doesn't know. So like that W2 income is a huge thing. I mean, that's definitely something I think we had did one about like probably in that one uh, um, before you quit your job to where it's like, there's a lot of things you should do that I wish I would have known before I quit my job in 2015 to move into real estate full time. Looking back, I'm like, damn. But I've just done these things before yeah. I quit. Uh, that would have been beneficial five years down the road. But at the time, I didn't know. Yeah. And, and even for myself, I mean, I grew up in real estate. I grew up in construction. I grew up doing this. It wasn't a huge shock doing shitty work for me. Like, I grew up doing shitty work. You know what I mean? I was, I was an immigrant most of my life. So, yeah, we did all the shitty work. So, doing and it never scared me to do the cold calling to do all that all the stress everything it never scared me it never worried me but there's people that just can't and and also having your job like you said you know besides the w-2 income that's how you pick up rental properties i mean we have friends of ours that are real estate investors that are killing it even though they have full-time jobs you know what i mean they're killing it because their job supplies them with a stable income and credit to pick up as many houses as they want to pick up. The little, I mean, not little bit of knowledge. Uh, like the knowledge, like once you understand that basic concept, and you get your own finances right, like you can exponentially increase a portfolio, increase your wealth in a very short period of time. Once you just gain that knowledge, like there's still a lot of hard work that has to go into it. 
But once you understand the basics of it, like you can start buying properties. Then yeah. it becomes the management style. Then it becomes the type of housing you buy. Then all the other stuff comes through. Yep. But you can get into the level. Everyone's like, I just want to buy that first property. I just want to buy that first property. You can get there very quickly. Like you understand the basics. You have a good job. You have some savings. And you can find a decent deal with the numbers make right that you can learn with. Yeah. But, well, and then also like the other point that we've covered before is people are going to quit their job, right? And they're going to get into real estate, but don't worry, my expenses are taken care of because I'm going to do the bigger pockets model and house hack, right? And we've talked about this so hacking. many times because it's just one of those things that's like, you know, bigger pockets needs to stop like pushing this so damn hard. And, and they need to focus on like, there's a lot more to this, right? Like house hacking in San Antonio is virtually impossible. You know, you, you cannot find multifamily homes that right now you can't even find multifamily homes in a decent area of town, the cash flows, because the investors that own the multifamily homes, they're not letting them go at a reasonable price. They're letting them go at a price that's like market value and you still got to put repairs over that. Yeah. And then when you even finance that, your mortgage is way more than whatever your rent is going to produce. And we went into great detail on house hacking and everything on how you got to protect yourself. But you you look at these things and it's like, um, there, there's so many unknowns. And, and the biggest one is your lack of knowledge and experience, right? It takes a lot of experience. It takes That's one thing that I always tell people, even when they come to us that they want to learn real estate and everything. It's like, look, you can buy the most expensive course in the world. You can buy all the books you want on real estate. You can listen to all the podcasts. The one thing that you can never pay for is experience. Yeah. Experience, you need to actually experience yourself. You need to go through it. You know, a way to do this is yes, you can partner with people to learn from their experience and kind of absorb some of their experience. But overall, like you need to put that time in because we always see it time and time again. They get into it, and because they have no experience, they don't know what the hell is going on. And then all of a sudden, it's like, man, I can't find any deals. Man, I can't find a project, or I just lost 40 grand on this last deal. It's like, well, yes, you don't know what you're doing. But I quit my job. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. You understand? Like, there, I think there's a, a more cautious way of going about it um, to make sure that you're not being so ballsy to just let me quit my job. I have no savings. I have nothing, but I'm going to do it in this industry that I know absolutely nothing about. Yeah. It's like not the right well, way I mean, to approach like, it. Real estate industry has, I mean, I, I, I would, I would love to hear like compared to other industries of like the amount of fluff that is sold in this industry and why that is, of. Uh, there's a lot of what what do they sell? They, they sell the steak, not the, or they sell the sizzle, not the steak mm-hmm. kind of thing. Where like I think there's a lot of that stuff that goes on in real estate towards like the house hacking. Like why does bigger pocket push it? Because it sells because it's next. Like I'm moving to duplex. I mean it does. Like just listen to the pitch. Of course, <laughs> like, it's like you move into one unit, you rent the other units out, and it pays for you and you live for free. Like oh yeah, who doesn't want to do that? The problem is is like everybody knows that. So those prices reflect that. And that is what buys those things in. Cause it's also like when it comes to like institutional investors or investors, like investors go after multifamily. So those prices get bid up very quickly. And especially in a market right now Yeah, to yeah. where it's like individual homeowners, you're in consumer usually doesn't want to go live in a duplex. They don't want to live in a quadplex. I mean, you just look at the uh, application uh, permits 
or small one to family unit complexes. Like yeah. they're basically non-existent. Like it's a perfect example. Like if you look at the last market uh, analysis I did for the four metros, you look at the number of unit permits for uh, one to f- or two to four unit builds. I mean, there's there's no basically no. non-existent compared to single family homes and large commercial properties as far as multifamily units. So what housing stock of your two to four units are available is extremely expensive because nobody's building it and your in consumer doesn't want to buy it. Yeah. So it's usually an investor that's buying it. So this prices get bit up very, very quickly. Yeah. And, and with that, with house hacking, those investors are picking them up. that are putting in that money. They're not house hacking. They need both areas to rent just to cover some of the mortgage, not all of it, because they're probably putting a large amount of money down, but they understand they eventually, you know, appreciation is going to catch up. Everything's going to catch up because of where it's positioned and all that. But if you don't have that kind of revenue and you're trying to house hack something like that, like, yeah, you're going to be in a huge, huge world of hurt when that comes through. So the next big idea is like, who are the people that, who are the ones that work for money, right? These are the people that are working for the money and it's your wholesalers, your flippers, your buy and hold investors, your note buyers, your lenders. These are the people that are all working for money. And a lot of people right now are probably thinking, wait, hold on. I was a buy and hold investor working for money. Like that's the whole point. It's passive income. Not if you're not doing it right. If you're not buying a rental correctly, you're not doing the analysis correctly. You can buy a house that's like, yeah, cash flows, but you never factored in the amount of repairs that house actually needs to be worth what even you paid for it. So it's like it cash flows right now, but when you need to go ahead and turn around and sell it and you need to actually do the repairs, you're underwater. Well, it doesn't make sense. And I think that's a perfect point to where like buying hold done wrong can be even worse than flipping. So where like there's people that I've I've met or heard about or how easily it can towards like they have a good job. They have good savings. They discover real estate and they jump both feet in and buy house, 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 like very quickly buying from these big wholesale companies, turn around and renting them, not understanding what a house is and how they act and how they perform and what property management is. They yeah. think it's like, oh, I just buy this house, put a tenant in it. I don't have to do anything anymore. And I hire a property manager. We're done. It's like, no. How's the foundation? How's the electrical? How's the roof? How's the air conditioner to where like, if ever, all those major components are crappy, yeah. you're going to get a crappy tenant that wants to live there because people themselves don't want to deal with that. Like I had a conversation with one of our tenants uh, recently and he, they want to renew again and their lease isn't up for another like eight months. He's like, I'm going to tell you right now we're renewing again. He's like, nice. he's like, because like I enjoy renting from you. You get it. You mm-hmm. understand it. It's like, I don't want to run the risk of moving to a house that I don't know and a landlord I don't know. Yep. Because I know there's a lot of people that like a landlord to say like, okay, you buy a house, you leverage it up and you're a spreadsheet person. You're tracking your return. All of a sudden the AC goes out and your AC guy that goes out there's like, man, this unit's 20 years old. Um, you really need a new unit. It's going to be six, seven grand to replace that. And you're like, ah, I don't want to spend it though. Can we, can we bandaid it? Can yep. we, can we, can we do something? It's like, well, I can put a new compressor in it. I mean, that'll run you like $900. And then it, it breaks every other month, every other week. It keeps breaking because all they're doing is putting band-aids on all these issues. Yeah. And then like the same thing with the roof, same thing with the foundation or it's like, oh, the foundation, I'm having plumbing issues. Like, yep. well, yeah, your toilet keeps backing up. Like, yeah, you're going to have problems. 
And I mean, yeah. this is a firsthand experience. We 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 fell into this to where like, luckily yeah. the tenant was cool to where we redid an entire house in the foundation, lifted everything. We knew there's going to be problems. We fixed all the plumbing underneath everything in the house of the new stuff held. We yeah. just didn't check from the exit of the house to the street. We're like, Oh, I mean, shouldn't have to worry about that thing. But the plumbing kept backing up, kept backing up. We're like, what is going on? Finally, we got somebody out there, ran a camera down it, and we realized the whole front line had a huge drop in it to where it was like three inches of water sitting in the line and on a four-inch pipe, so only one inch for air to flow through to where there was a family of four living in the house, and using it, it would continually get clogged up because it wasn't flowing out to the street yeah so it was backing up to where we had to spend luckily we owned a house on either side of it we did all three of them at once to bring the cost down but that could be four five six thousand dollars and your house not being usable for three four five days where they're redoing that so you got to put your tenant up to where like you got to understand housing yeah. performs or if you buy a bunch of really cheap what seems like great deals cheap housing from these big wholesale outfits and things like that it's like they're not good well, deals. They're not cheap deals because they're going to get very expensive, very long and over the time. And then you realize like you're not bringing in the cash flow to where you're having to dump more of your active income yeah. back into these properties. And it's like, and mortgages don't go down over time. That's how you can work for money being a buy to hold investor. A hundred percent. Cause you got to keep that money coming in and take care of these terrible investments that you just made. And then it's the same wholesalers and flippers to me, they're kind of in the same realm because it's, we see this time and time again with wholesalers and flippers all the time is that, you know, they get one, make some money. Okay. Go get another one. Uh, they get that makes Okay. Go get another one. Okay. Go get another one. Oh, we got to go get another one. So you, you look at all this and it's like, yeah, you have to constantly be getting more and more deals and you're always looking for that. You're kind of like a junkie at that point. Yeah. You're always looking for that next hit, right? Yeah. And that, all you're doing, if you think about it, like you are literally busting your ass time and time and time again to find that next hit, right? And it's the same thing for lenders and note buyers. It's the same thing. They're, they just, they're always looking for that next hit, that next hit. So the third big idea here is who is actually building wealth? So as a real estate investor, right, we have, you know, we have your wholesalers, your flippers, your buy and hold. So if all of them are working for money, then who is building wealth? And to us, it's very simple. Those are actually focused on building systems around what they're doing. So if you want to flip houses or if you want to wholesale or if you want to buy and hold, you want to lend, you got to put systems in place. Something that makes sure that you're checking and you're making sure that you're not buying bad investments, that you have the right people lined up, that you can do this time and time again to a point where it's like you don't even have to work all that hard for this to start producing on its own, right? Where they say, you know, the rich don't work for money. It's because you are putting the systems in place that are helping you generate the deals, helping you generate everything that you need to generate. So therefore it's like, okay, yeah, now my system is working for me. Now my system is generating me revenue and generating me um, what I need from this business and all of this. Um, so it's just, you got to focus on building systems. You got to focus on building a repeatable process right? If you can't repeat this process, you're just working for money. If you can't repeat this strategy, you're working for money, right? Because you're doing it once, chances you're going to be able to do it again are going to be very small. It's going to be very different. If you can't repeat it, you're just working for money. And the problem is like, 
like we see a lot of times, right? The market changes. Things change. Things become more expensive. There are shifts like we've seen this past year. And because you were doing something that wasn't repeatable, now all of a sudden your whole business model went up in flames. And it's like, so what are you doing now? I, I, I don't know. I guess I'll wholesale some houses. What do you know about wholesaling? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing, <laughs> you know? So, and we've seen this with so many investors, buy and hold investors, fix and flip, lenders. They didn't have repeatable process on how, who, how they found their properties, how they managed them, how they vetted them, how they, you know, how they even found the investors they wanted to invest with. So if you're not having a repeatable process, it's, you're just not going anywhere. It's, you're always going to be in the same spot over and over and over. And also, you got to focus on building teams, right? If you don't put a team around you, if you can't build a team around you to help you with all these areas, I mean, we're talking about it now, how we're, you know, we're hiring people, we're bringing people on. And even for our properties, yeah, we do self-managing because it just, we've seen what it is to hire a property manager and it doesn't make sense a lot of times. So we prefer to self-manage, but we are going to have to bring in somebody to help manage these properties. So what are we doing? We're building the systems, we're building the process. So that way we can just hire somebody, plug them in and say, here's our process. When somebody calls with a complaint, here's the process, well, not here's, just, here's the system. The, not just here's the process, like here's the people. Yeah. Like even more importantly than the process is the people to do the work in a way that you trust and can do it efficiently and effectively. Cause like mm -hmm. tenants hate nothing. I mean, just my personal experience or just think about it for anybody. Like your AC goes out, in july and it takes your landlord two weeks to replace the air conditioner how pissed are you going to be by day two yeah and like how good are you going to take care of that property moving forward if the landlord doesn't give a damn about the property or you yep. so it's like I, we have our teams we have our people like when something goes wrong it's like i can get somebody out there asap and do it in an effective way because if you don't have those teams you can always get somebody out there in 24 hours it's like, is it how much you're going to pay to get that person out there in 24 hours? And now if I got a consistent team of people that I got my plumbers, electricians, ACs, like your major components that if something breaks, I got to get out somebody out there right away. Otherwise it's going to cause major damage to not only the house, but our relationship with that tenant mm -hmm. to where if I got something backing up in the sewer or something like that, like I, if I don't get somebody out there in 24 hours, it, it's really going to like, people don't like the smell of shit in their house and I can get somebody out there for emergencies, but they're $200 just to show up, let alone the, Oh, they're going to run a snake down the line. That's another $300. So $500 repair. My God does it for a hundred. I can get somebody there in 24 hours. Yeah. So like over time, I need those people. Cause otherwise if you have to, if you do everything on the fly emergencies every single time with new people and build no rapport with like people that can actually do the work, like it'll eat any kind of cash flow return right out of your pocket so fast. Yep. It's like, it's has to have, you have to have a well, reliable team. And uh, us, why we've gotten burned so many times with contractors is because time and time again, with every project that we do, we're always trying to build our team because we're thinking long-term. We're not thinking this project. If we keep thinking on every single house, oh, I just need this project done. I just need this project done. The problem you have is that then that's all you're going to ever have work for. You're not going to be able to build relationship with contractors that you can depend on, yeah. with people that you can always count on whenever you need something. Like you, you're not building that because you're always burning and churning contractors, burning and churning investors, everybody. And it's like, how can you grow that? How can you scale that? How can you even implement this business model or system 
in on any other city if you are so involved in every single step yeah. right we've heard an investor friend of ours that the way they manage a rehab is they literally plop a chair in front of their project and work from that chair because they yeah. need to manage i'm like then that's fine it works for them because of the that's business the model they have yeah. and that 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 works for them they don't they're not looking for scale or anything like that but that's you're always working for money at that point you understand because you're not you don't you got to be at every single one of your rehabs you know how many rehabs can you manage at that point right yeah. how many deals can you do if if you have opportunities in other cities other states you can't well, do that everywhere you go and it's it's a lot of trial and error yeah. A lot of trial and error to find these people, these core people that are there. Because, I mean, and that's what I would say. Real estate and everything can be so dangerous just jumping both feet in. Because, like, it takes time, resources, money, uh, and failure after failure to find these people, to find, to learn these lessons. To where it's like, you're buying one house. Don't go out and buy five right off the bat and just five deep and then just keep going, like, ready to go. It's like... Yeah. It takes a minute to learn these things. Or if you're going to work with a contractor, don't jump in on five projects all at once with the same contractor. Yeah. Because then it's like, you don't know what kind of work they do, right? And now you're dependent on them for the next three, four projects. And if they suck and you're tied to them and you bought them. And the thing, like, and you better know how to replace contractors quickly and efficiently and effectively. It's like, that is the portion of like the quote unquote building teams aspect of it's not only just for your business, like your contract team, your field team is probably the most important piece of making sure your investment holds. You can have all the back end office work you want, but if you don't have people to do the work to actually make the asset perform and people you can trust, like it'll, it'll sink you real quick. Cause a lot of times we're using big dollars, we're using big leverage to do these things to where like leverage is great, but it's also extremely dangerous because it can go on, go backwards and unwind extremely fast yeah well and especially in this market i mean right now there there's so much easy money out there that if you're if you don't understand how to work with that money and everything you get accustomed to easy money and then you don't realize like when the market changes with strategies change and you got used to that easy money and now you can't find that anymore because usually when the market's changing stuff that easy money is gone yeah because they're the ones that are scared they're the ones that, because they're not investing with any intelligence. Well, I mean, that's what, ca- that's what causes crashes. Exactly. Is when that liquidity disappears and nobody wants to lend their money because I think prices are going to continue to fall. Yeah. Like that's what makes things fall even faster. Well, and, and then the last point here is focus on strategic partnerships, right? And that's something that you and I are big, big proponents about. We've do we've always done partnerships pretty much on every area of our business. And we were actually, this past week, we were doing our quarterly, you know, rundown of our business, our strategy session, kind of seeing where our business is, where it's going and everything. We were talking with a good friend of ours, Logan. We went to his office space, amazing house. Uh, he cool. bought this massive little mansion in, uh, in Government Hill of San Antonio and gorgeous property. I mean, really cool spot. And... He, we were just talking about like hiring and all this, and we were telling him about how we found a rock star of a acquisitions guy here in San Antonio, and we offered him a partnership. Like, let's open up a company, we'll split it evenly, and let's run this company to acquire, flip, do everything. Like, you know, you're killing it in acquisitions. Acquisitions is a full time thing, and his biggest holdup is like, well, yeah, but you know, the percentage split. Like, yeah, it's all even. Yeah, but, you know, on a $10,000 deal, that means... And I'm like, the fuck are you talking about on a $10,000 deal? Like, you're, you're not thinking 
strategically. You're thinking transactionally, my next deal, my next deal. And it's like the whole point of partnering with somebody and doing a strategic partnership is for volume, for scale, not for what are we going to do on this one deal, right? It's that, no, instead of you now doing, let's say one flip, now you can manage maybe six, seven, eight flips at the same time. You know what I mean? Instead of doing like one project, you could do multiple projects at once. And he was sharing with us how he did a partnership like that recently. And it's paying out massively for them because now they were able to combine their knowledge, their resources, their capabilities, and they're crushing it. They're doing so much more than they were doing before. And it's like, yes, that is the point of a strategic partnership. Yeah. You know, but if, when you think so small, like flippers and, and uh, wholesalers do, and everybody's like, no, no, I, I got to do it. I got to keep 100% of everything. It's like, you know, do you want 100% of a grape or 50% of a watermelon? You know what I'm saying? It's like, you can have 100%, but it's always going to be of a very small place until you build the teams, until you bring the people, you build the systems, until you do all those things, you're always going to be working for money. Yep. You know, so... That, that's kind of our, our little rant on why the rich don't work for money and how it is that you can kind of get, you can get there yourself is by thinking this way. If you're going to be building a business, if you're going to be getting into real estate, you got to think about how is it that I can do this and everything that I'm doing, how can I go building a system around this? How can I scale this? How can I branch this off somewhere else? Um, by doing that, it's just going to be you're, you're actually going to build something that's going to be sustainable and not something that as soon as the market shifts, you're out of business because you have no idea what the hell just happened. So with that being said, I wanted to go ahead and look because I saw there was a lot There's of comments coming. There's a question here that I wanted to get to that Master Jedi, yeah. like he said, uh, absolutely on fire on this live chat, hashtag crushings, dropping some knowledge bombs and some uh, some uh, um, laughable comments there for sure. Um, so your question was like, how does the dynamic relationship work with older real resale home neighborhoods when it comes to appreciation? I purchased 1996 rental near downtown Kyle for 255. Kyle has like 4,000 new construction coming online. Does that mean my resale older home appreciation slows down slash sucks? It's really a big picture question. Older neighborhood resales with all this new master build construction coming online, appreciation, not cash flow as a rental. So, I mean, the thing that I like about like one thing you look at, there's a macro aspect and then there's a, a micro aspect of it or like the micro aspect of it. Older homes typically tend to appreciate faster than new construction because there's not land around it that they're building. Like, but Kyle is a small community, but you are close to downtown. So it's kind of a two-way thing to where on the macro perspective, like you're on the 35 corridor. Why are there 4,000 new constructions going? Why are all these master plan communities going along? It's because the demand is there for housing along the 35 corridor. And you're like and, 20 minutes from Austin. And you're <laughs> 20 minutes from Austin, uh, essentially, to where it's like, it, it, it. that's why I said real estate is very local when it comes to certain locations right. where like we typically buy in areas that are in developing areas. Um, what now the question I would ask you is what is the starting prices of those new construction homes? Or if these new construction homes are at 350, $400,000, uh, I think you're sitting pretty good because that means they're not building houses at 255,000 in relation to the job corridor or the downtown area of Kyle, which I really don't think there's a whole lot of industry, big industry in downtown Kyle. Cause it's mainly 
Kyle's Kyle because it's relation to Austin and San Antonio and San Marcos and stuff like that. Yeah, it's almost a suburb of Austin at this point. Yeah, uh, really, they <laughs> suburbs of San Antonio and Austin, they all run together. So that would be what I would look at is like, what is the new construction home volume at and what is the quality of housing? Because they could be selling houses at 250000 but you look at you're on a half acre and you actually have land and there's 250 homes are all smashed together going vertical and nowhere to park. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to look at that. It's like, what is going to be the ideal price? Like, what is going to be the ideal location for people wanting to buy? So that is what I would look at as far as that goes. But I mean, the good thing is like you're on the 35 corridor, your downtown location to Kyle, they're building 4,000 new construction around it because you have so much people moving or demand for housing in that corridor of housing. So that is what I would look at uh, for like San Antonio is, okay, you said the 390,000. I think you're just fine because the fact that you have a 1996 home, it's not, so the style of the 96 homes are still pretty comparable to the style they're building now as far as the open concepts or can very easily modify them to that. That. So if they're building at 390 or 255, somebody that wants to buy a house for 300,000 can't buy a brand new house. So they're going to go look at other places to buy. And you being at 255, it's going to bring your prices up so much quicker than something going from 390 to if so now that say that house downtown was uh, valued at like 400,000. I was like, yeah, your appreciation might not be there that great because they can go buy a brand new house, not too far away. But the fact that you're at such a lower price, I think your appreciation is going to be sitting very, very well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one thing that we always looked at whenever we're buying a house, um, for long-term and everything is, is there a lot of vacant land around it? There's a lot of vacant land. Appreciation can take a huge hit because they start propping up new homes they're going to be competing with you. And it's really not a competition at that point. But like John says, when the prices are so drastic, it's going to help your appreciation because it's at least going to bring you up above that $300,000 price price point because the next level is $390,000, you know? And in a lot of these homes, I mean, $390,000 is still higher end home, depends the quality, I guess, of who's building there. But you know, a lot of these areas, especially the homes that we've seen in San Antonio popping up at an affordable price point, they're like these freaking matchbox oh, no. looking homes, no Thousand carport. Square feet, no garage, no carport on 0.07 acres. Like yeah. you are just your your dog together. wants to go to the yard to take a piss. It's just like steps out the door and lifts his leg. Cause any more than that, there's no yard. So it's like, you know, it's one of those things that you gotta look at what your competition actually looks like. And there's a lot of people that in these new developments, you have no trees, you have nothing, you know, it's very bare, where in these older developments, you have more mature trees, you have, you know, it looks nicer. So there's a lot of people that like that, those amenities as well. So you got to keep an eye on that. Like, does this neighborhood have like an appeal, a charm to it, something that will make people want to be here? I mean, from being downtown Kyle to being outside of downtown car i don't think it makes a difference what's that yeah. like two three three streets i mean like you know you're, both away. <laughs> yeah you're, you're not you're not really at a at a massive like like san antonio if you're downtown san antonio versus on the outskirts yeah now you are talking yeah. about maybe a 40 minute drive with traffic and everything where where i would be worried is saying like hey i bought a new house built in 2017 right across the street or less than a half mile away from where they're building all these brand new houses that's when i would be worried because it's like prices in 2017 were still fairly high you probably would have been paying like 330 
340 for a new house where it's 390 that's where you get into trouble buying the what john talked about like there's a lot of vacant land it's like we bought or not we like my mom got a rental property on the way on the outskirts of san antonio and out by converse yeah and but picked it up for one hundred twenty thousand. as like they're building new homes all over out there but their starting prices are in the 200s yep. and higher to where it's like in their smaller houses and they're more condensed together to where like ours backs one of the major roads. There's a fire station across the street from it. It's not going to, oh. but it still has appreciated. What year is that there, house? 2005. Exactly. So you're, you weren't also buying like a ridiculously older home. Yeah. You bought a 2005 home. So the, the aesthetics, the appeal, everything is still kind of there to these new neighborhoods. So you, you kind of have a new home severely underpriced to what the next homes are selling for. Yep. So, yeah, so that's something I hope that helps uh, Master Jedi. And he says that he loves mature landscaping. Very, and turns him on. So apparently he likes mature wood. Uh, that, that being said, <laughs> I wanted to touch on this topic uh, before we start wrapping up. And it's uh, oil prices. I mean, we're seeing oil prices just keep going up and up and up. At last I saw, I think oil is trading at like $73 a barrel. I mean, that's just nuts. I mean, what we haven't it? seen 73 like since like what, 2013-ish? I thought it was even higher. And I thought it got to like 120s and like, oh, that was more no, like no, 2008, no, no, no. 9, 10. That yeah, got that yeah high. 2008 and all that went 70, beyond. 74.52 is what. So it's going right up again. Wow. So all of this affects literally everything you do in your life versus, you know, as far as like building houses, buying houses, renting, buying food, filling up your gas tank, everything. I mean, everybody just looks at oil prices at the pump and it's just much more than that, right? So the article goes to say oil jumped to its highest level in six years after talks between OPEC and its oil producing allies, OPEC plus. So they, they also have their streaming service. Um, where were postponed indefinitely with the group failing to reach an agreement on production policy for August and beyond. Discussions begun, began last week between OPEC and its allies as the Energy Alliance sought to establish output policy for the remainder of the year. The group on Friday voted on a proposal that would have returned 400,000 barrels per day to the market each month from August through December, resulting in an additional 2 million barrels per day uh, by the end of the year. Members also proposed extending the output cuts through the end of 2022. For us, it was a good deal. UAE Minister of Energy and Infrastructure said, and he added that the country that the country would support short-term increase in supply, but wants better terms if the policy is to be extended through 2022. 2022, my goodness. Uh, with no increase in production, the forthcoming growth in demand should see global energy markets tighten up at an even faster pace than anticipated. Um, this impasse will lead to a temporary and significantly larger than anticipated deficit, which should fuel even higher prices for the time being. The summer breakout in oil prices is set to gather steam at a fast clip. So they are 
they came to an impasse. They cut down, uh, I believe I was reading before in, an, in a different article, like they had cut down uh, oil supplies by like 10 million barrels um, when 2020 happened because nobody was going yeah, anywhere, no, right? No. Nobody was driving. So they cut that down and slowly they've been adding more barrels uh, every day to the market. And now when OPEC Plus came out and they said they wanted the 400,000 per month uh, till the end of tw uh, the year, and then also increase the the supplies through 2022. OPEC said, uh, "No, we kind of like these high prices." I know that's what it's like. What is their issue of like getting more oil to the market? But it's like, yeah, they want prices to go up. Because I mean, I know like oil companies obviously got hit really hard last year when like everything started like crashing and falling through the floor to where they're trying to make some of that money back up. But now, especially since the U S is cutting its oil production down where it's like, well, now we got the, in the, the biggest consuming economy in the world and cutting mm -hmm. its oil. It's like, well, we're going to boost these prices and we're going to start getting some of that money because they're no longer in oil independent. They need our oil. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so my question to you, I guess it, it in this whole topic. So oil, again, it affects everything, right? Because we're, what are we looking at? If oil prices keep going up, gas prices are going to go up. It's going to affect transportation, right? We've already had a huge hit because of transportation, the lack of truck drivers, the lack of laborers and everything that's hurt supply chains tremendously. And we've seen it in the housing market, not just in lumber, but in finished goods, right? Like toilets, cabinets, I mean, light fixtures, everything where we're just, there isn't the supply because they got to be delivering them. So it's already been hurting that industry. And then they've had to increase the pay for truck drivers. In a lot of areas, they've gone from as low as 40 grand to as high as 140 now that a truck driver makes a year. Insane yeah. growth, right? So all those expenses, everything, we go back to the inflation talk. This affects the end consumer, right? Because all of that gets passed down. So now you add to that these rising oil prices, and they're predicting oil to cross $100 a barrel. It's going to further hurt transportation. It's going to further hurt, you know, all the transportation of ingredients, uh, you know, storage stuff for grocery stores, for everything. So, I mean, what are you seeing and what are you thinking are some areas that we need to watch out for with this kind of news? I mean, it is going to be something because it's like the big industries. Like, yes, we're moving very quickly towards renewable energies and things like that for the end consumer as far as like cars and stuff like that. But like when you're talking a semi having to pull thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of lumber and weight to move this stuff around to get these materials here, talk building materials, uh, concrete, uh, some very heavy stuff. I know Tesla's coming out with like they're, 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 cement they're not cement truck they're electric vehicle mm -hmm. but it's also these trucks don't run I, I get a battery it's like it needs to be charged like these trucks run thousands of miles at a time and with with dual drivers and things like that to where an electric vehicle like you're talking having to fleet these things up drastically your battery powers the capacity you got to generate that power like where's all that power come from to move these things or like high oil prices are going to affect your consumer goods as far as like moving just for the fact of just trying to move this stuff around the country building yeah. materials i mean trains like i don't see it i haven't heard any talks of like a bunch of electric trains i mean, I know you got your bullet trains passenger trains but like 
these major trains pulling hundreds and thousands of cars and lumber and things around. Like I don't see very many of them going electric at a very rapid yeah. rate where it's like, there's a lot of technology that needs to come out in that battery power, not only battery power, but the power generation quickly charge those things because if they're just sitting still, that means they're not moving product, not moving product means they're not making money yeah. where it's like, if it's got to sit there and charge for three days or it can move one load across the country, well, it's equivalent fossil fuel just made it across the country three times. Yep. So. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be one of those things that, you know, you're looking, I'm, I'm more curious, like, is this going to further push because the, you know, the administration that we have and everything, they're very big on going green on the alternative energy and everything. So do you think this kind of push on OPEC and everything going to make the administration and all these companies kind of like, Hey, we need to get our, shit together and really push alternative energy, which in turn, I think is a, a very bad play for the oil producing companies, right? Because you have all these oil producing companies playing these kind of games where it's like, if you keep forcing the market, the market is going to find an alternative. Eventually they will find an alternative and then you're kind of screwed, you know, because what are you going to do at that point? So I think it's something that I see you guys playing the games and everything because you can at the moment, but don't underestimate innovation and, you know, desperation with people that. Well, I mean, you look at OPEC, I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to see like what percentage of the world they, they, they provide as far as like oil goes. Cause like, there's not much over there as far as industry goes in the middle East. It's really, it's like, it's oil. That's what they got. They got lots and lots of oil and that's like their major economic driver where if it's like, well, they get a lot of sun, you got solar generation, you got power generation, but like, yeah, but their entire infrastructure is set up to move oil and to where they really don't have a lot of really of anything else because they're taking oil money to replace the oil. Like it, those people don't want to change yeah, at, at all. Or like the U.S. is very diverse in our asset pool of like how we can produce energy. Um, but yeah, you keep messing with uh, those things. It's like, well, try to eliminate us we're going to continue to increase oil prices so it's it's going to be a very painful transition yeah. when it, it comes to that and then because you, you're also looking at like i'm looking at the summer you know travel right it's going to affect like people traveling your your gas prices are going up everything else is going up and it gets to a point where maybe a lot of families that were thinking about traveling are going to be i don't know i don't know it's going to cost us even more money now because i mean we went from like what forty two dollars a barrel to like seventy four now just this year alone. So I mean that's that's a massive bump right there. You're you're talking about nearly a hundred percent increase that it, it factors in. Then you have air travel and all these other things. That's like it, it's all we go back to the same thing. Everything is roped in together. Yeah. That something like this is not just oh I pump my gas and you know oh my god this sucks. No, it's everything now you know and we we get our home depot rewards for gas and i was like hey what the hell happened with the home depot rewards is it you're like well when these gas prices <laughs> yeah it's like have you seen the price of gas yeah it's like when gas is free you don't really look at the price but also it's like oh yeah you chew through six dollars in rewards really quick when it's three dollars a yeah, gallon exactly i was like well last summer shit. it's like we had eight dollars at one point it's like hey, we didn't pay for gas for like four months yeah it was and quite some time that yeah, we got down to like damn near yep. like, what was it like the lowest i got like dollar 20s but it's also like we have seen these prices before when it comes to gas like 2008 oh, yeah. 9 and 10 they were higher than they are now yeah um so it's like but then everything kind of came back down. And so they come it, in, like Brian's just, point, but he's like, everything comes in cycles. Oh, a hundred percent. My point is just like, 
it's too many cycles hitting at once is what I'm going at. Is that you're looking at the same thing. You're looking at, you know, the pandemic, right? The pandemic caused all this strain and everything. It's caused unemployment, uh, you know, crazy unemployment. It's caused even employment to be an issue where there's a lot of people that are quitting more of their jobs. They're not wanting to go back. They want, you know, higher wages, whatever it is. But you, you add that, then you add the inflation that's coming in with the housing market, with rents, with food, with everything. Now you add higher gas prices. And if they happen to raise interest rates, I mean, there's just too many things that, yes, they're cyclical, but these were forced into the market. That my thing is like all of this perfect storm when does this cycle kind of like peter out if it yeah. does or more my guess is that the pendulum's shot in one direction and i believe that it's going to overshoot in another direction what does that look like i don't know i just don't think that it's going to go crazy as it is and then it's just going to nicely stable off like i think we're going to get a lot more whipsaw in the market in a lot of the things that we do as investors as business owners as just regular consumers in the market you know so these are things that i believe you need to be cautious about you need to really keep an eye on well i mean uh brian uh thank you for looking that up but he said like opec produces about 40 percent of the world's oil and has about 79 percent of the world's known reserves like they're gonna fight like hell to, oh, to oh, sure. keep that and because oh, that is sure. where all of their money comes from 90 percent, i mean 79 percent of the world reserves and 40 percent of the entire world depends on them yeah uh, it's like yeah, they're gonna do a lot, and it's like we were very inter we're very energy dependent world. Yeah, so it's like any production. Or we should go back to coal. I heard coal was very efficient and cheap. Yeah, it killed the the environment, but you know we got around. I mean, hey, let's make in <laughs> Texas a nice, cool, rainy summer for you to give enough rain like this. Constantly, trees are gonna grow. Oh, man, that's so, terrible. I don't know if you're gonna get mountains out of it, but uh, but uh, yeah, so. That's something that seriously, guys, keep an eye on. Keep an eye on what's going on with oil prices and everything, because it's not just your gas tank that this is going to affect. It affects every area of your life. Well, I mean, um, uh, Master Jerry's put a question here. He's like, "Why the hell is gas so much more expensive in California? It makes no damn sense." Like, it's straight sure taxes. It yeah. Straight taxes. Yeah. It's where you look at, like, just just Google the um, state gas tax. Per state, and you'll see California has some of the highest, mm -hmm. and Texas actually has some of the lowest. That's why we usually have our gas prices are two seventy here, and it's four twenty five, four fifty in California, where they probably have over a dollar. And every not only do the states implement gas taxes, counties implement gas taxes, and the cities implement gas taxes. To where um, my uh, uh, girlfriend and the, her family's from Southern San Diego or Southern california and there was a big dispute there to where the municipality came out or the state came out in one shot put a like 25 cent per gallon gas tax and boom overnight gas shot up 25 cents and the mm. state took all of it and they did it without boat voter approval either they just yeah. did it and Jesus. then they realized like a few years later it came back to where they had to get voter approval but then the way they worded the ballot by thinking you were voting against it if you didn't read the specific words you're actually voting for it to where it was just a huge thing to where like if you just look at the, the taxes of gas like gas really probably doesn't change too much between state and state of just the actual gas itself but now when you talk at the taxes on top of it yeah. is where you get these massive differences between states i mean just in um when i grew up in college like missouri had 10 cents less per gallon in gas yeah so where and we were right on the border there was a gas station if you went four miles and it was state line boom gas station 
rundown gas station, but always packed. Always packed. Because people yep. were always driving that extra well, bit to go get gas. In New York, is the same thing. We had uh, Jersey had always much, much cheaper gas than New York did. So uh, when we used to do construction and everything, we used to do a lot of houses in Jersey because we were in that little tri-state area, so it was easy to get to. And yeah, I mean, it, my I remember my dad with his construction trucks and everything, he would just wait, like, all right, we're kind of running low. Well, we have a house coming up in Jersey, so hold off. We're going to fill up once we get into Jersey because it was a massive difference. You know what I mean? And prices. And it's just, those are the things you got to pay attention to. And that's why when you look at, we talked about this uh, last week of why so many people in companies and everything is, they're coming to Texas, they're leaving California and all, because all of those things add up, what they're taxing you, how they're hurting your business. Master Jedi's point is that even with the tax, that ratio is not right. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, it's still not right. But then you ask, you, it all compounds on each other. What's it cost to run a business in California? Texas costs you nothing to keep an LLC open. California, $800 just to keep an LLC, even if you don't make a dollar. So then the trucking industry, the taxes on trucking businesses, yeah. the tax on oil production in that state. So like you add all that in there towards like, that's where you get those ratios is like, it, it is taxes, not just on the state gas tax per gallon, but the tax on the businesses, the tax on the incomes, the taxes mm-hmm. on the trucks, the taxes on petroleum products, the taxes on the cost of moving that oil around. It's like, that's where everything comes from. <laughs> Since I moved to California, in my mind, gas are now a, a knit, knit now. I'm a hit now. It's basically free in Texas. Anytime I have family that visits from uh, Southern California, they're like, man, everything's so cheap around here. It's like, oh, even, I, even I go out there and I'm like, God, I want to go home. Everything's so expensive. I have family that when they come down, even they smoke cigarettes for whatever reason. People still smoke cigarettes. Um, and they're like, man, even cigarettes are so much cheaper down here. And it's like. Yeah, this is Texas, man. Like they're it's they're the not South. they're not focused on killing you on everything you make. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I wanted to wrap up with this last article because I thought it was I, th- I think it was an interesting point to hit uh, as far as we all go in our lives and business. But you have a hacker gang was behind an international crime spree that played out over the Fourth of July weekend. Uh, it says it locked up. It locked more than a million individual devices and is demanding $70 million in Bitcoin to set them all free in one swoop. The gang, uh, the gang, the Russian connected Revil, so our evil, um, is best known for previously having hacked JBS, one of the world's largest meat suppliers, briefly halting its operations across much of North America. But this attack's potential scope is unprecedented, some cybersecurity experts say. So Revo began its spree Friday by compromising Kesia, a software company that helps companies manage basic software updates because many of the Kesia's customers are companies that manage internet services for other businesses. The number of victims grew quickly. Instead of locking... An individual organization, as ransomware gangs usually do, Revo locked each victim computer as a standalone target and initially asked for 45K to unlock each one. The Swedish grocery chain Co-op is the largest known victim. It closed most of its about 800 stores all day Saturday. 800 stores. It regist- its registers were controlled online by Visma, whatever, a 
Cassia customer and uh, locked up and rendered unusable. Revo's claim that it has compromised more than a million devices is impossible to prove because few victims are speaking publicly, publicly and no government or company has a database of everyone who was hit. So here's my thing. As I'm reading this, uh, we've we kind of been dealing with this issue on and off this year of hackers and, and shit that's happened to our systems and our stuff is it's scary, right? It's scary to think because you're thinking like a lot of us, you know, maybe you use Google drive or like us that we use a server company for our, our office server and all this that you're like, okay, yeah, we're, we're good. We're protected. You know, we hire this big company, but if that big company has the slightest little weakness they penetrate the company, and in return, they penetrate everybody that company touches. And how do they get to a million devices or a million people? Is because those devices are connected to other people that can connect it to other people. And they're like, these viruses, they're made in a way that it goes to the next endpoint of computer of technology. And lately, uh, we've been having an issue with one of our printers, and our T IT guy, he looked at it and everything. He's like, seems like somebody's trying to hack you guys through your printer. I was like, the fuck what does that even look like like i didn't even know you could hack a printer like that you know and it's just it's got power and connected to the internet it can be hacked and it's just one of those scary things right that you you think about as, as a business owner as anything that you think you're protected right your business is protected and everything because you're hired google or you're hired this and it's like no they can still pierce that and still get all your stuff yeah. or, or still lock down like they did to us at the uh, you know a couple months back that they encrypted all of our files you know what i mean and they wanted the same thing they wanted to get paid in bitcoin and all this stuff and they encrypted everything and it hacked our server which in turn connected to our g drive which connected to all these things and it hacked everything right and it's like holy crap yeah like what do you do i mean that's just like say you have to have fail safe on top of fail safe on top of fail safe to where it's like yeah it's a very rudimentary thing that we do but it's like it can't be hacked because it's not hooked to the internet constantly mm -hmm. they're like our now backup system it's just like that's just how we have to do it it's like because it's yeah it's like you really have to do that every week yeah because if this shit happens we only lose a week of our our business yeah and that's it and we, we don't fall prey to this but even then like now they coming in through let's say they they can hack our printer and come in through into our network through the printer now they can access the rest of our network so now we need to make self uh, safeguards to even our own computers because they, if they hack into our network, they can access our computers, which has all the passwords, bank account info, everything. So the next thing is like I, I, I've started doing for quite some time and we all do it and I recommend you guys do it, is the two-step verification. So your emails, your bank accounts, anything, everything. anything that has two-step verification, you should definitely do it. Yeah. Because even if somebody was to hack our stuff, we get the two-step notification instantly on our phone of like, you know, you got to approve it through a text message or through an app on your phone or through something. So yeah. they may be able to hack one layer, but now they got to hack the other layer. I know it's like, I know it's annoying. It's an inconvenience. People don't want to do it, but um, it is a huge thing. <laughs> like I hate it every time I need it because our Adobe, like you've used it and I'm like, I need to use it. I log in. It says, Oh, you need to sign in. I sign in and it's under your phone. There's yeah. like, Oh, 
I can't go to Gilda John right now, so I can't open PDFs on my computer <laughs> because like you were busy, you're doing well, something. It seems like, like it's like not unlocking. You need to learn how to hack then. Um, <laughs> but it, it, so Master Jedi said that John swore again. What is it with you? You have a potty mouth today? Why do you keep swearing? Stop oh, swearing! God. My God. You know, I, I'm I'm over here. You know, I'm I'm a good person, and I don't I don't never curse, so it hurts my ears to apparently hear you curse. Um, <laughs> that being said, <laughs> yeah, it, it's something that I think is is very scary because they're coming in literally through anything and everything, and this really sucks for us because the more programs, the more things that we have, services, and everything, this means that we need to create like we need to be recycling through our passwords consistently. Oh, it's you so know annoying. what I mean, and it's just one of those things that's like. Using the same password Jesus, for everything. You it's can't. Like you can't. It's like, it, it's like, it is working itself. Like to almost once a year, yeah. you got to go on there and like, damn it. Like I got to go through and cycle through all my passwords. I got to change everything. Mm-hmm. Like, and then you got to remember this one password. But if you get the, forget that one password for like a last pass or a password bank, it's like, shit. I don't remember what the hell that password so, is. And like, I, I almost, I, cause uh, LastPass recently did that where it logged out of everything. Yeah. Or you had to log back into stuff, and or I was like logging the last pass. I was like, oh god, it's been so long since I logged into that. Like, what is it? And like, I went to do like forgot passwords. Like, they don't even keep it. Like, we we don't store your passwords or anything like that. So like, you have to reset oh. it, and like, and it's a process to reset a master password. Like, just like your Apple ID, mm-hmm. you forget your Apple ID. Like, oh man, is that a nightmare to try to replace? As it should be, and and that's something that you also got to be careful. Is I know a lot of people um that are watching that they use apple notes their notes app to house all of their passwords yeah like guys your your phone is literally the most vulnerable device out there because what does everybody do as soon as they go somewhere they connect to the wi-fi yeah to any free wi-fi starbucks home depot h-e-b they always connect to the free wi-fi those free wi-fis have no security any half decent hacker can go on there and every device that's connected, they can see every single device. Yeah. And they can get into every single device. And if you're one of those people that likes to keep all of your passwords in your notes app, it's not, you know, innovative things. Everybody knows that. Yeah. And that's all they gotta do is they open your notes app, they got everything. And you are keeping your you're not just keeping just your bank password, but what the self uh the the freaking Fail-safe passwords are for, you know, like, what's your favorite food and what's your favorite this and yeah, all these yeah. other things. And it's like, you just gave them everything. Like, you you gave them access to your whole thing. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I'd be curious to for anybody that's listening, if you have feedback, like, what are ways that you can protect that? Because VPNs, even then, like, they say, no, VPNs aren't all, they can't protect you against all of this. They, they're hackers bypass VPNs all the time. Uh you know, antiviruses, they don't do shit anymore. It's like, how do you protect yourself? You know, especially when these massive corporations that are focused on like cybersecurity are getting hacked and their clients are getting hacked. It's like, well, then it's even then they used to, they won't go after big corporations and big things. But nowadays it's like they go after small. No, but they go after the big corporations and they hit the small people in relate because it goes right through to everybody else. uh, It's like, it's printer. Like they didn't find that through a massive corporations. Like what they're like, what Jeremy was or our IT guy was talking about. He's like using like the subsurface of Reddit, figuring out that like I think those because our printer was spitting off these weird little codes and stuff. He's like, I think somebody's trying to hack in through your printer port. And he's like, Well, you have an HP eighty six hundred printer, and he's like, It's an older printer. 
and its firmware is probably outdated and it doesn't mm-hmm. have an automatic feature to update those things. It's like, that's probably what needs to happen is like people. So they just know these, some hacker out there knows that these 8,600 HP printers are older, connected to the internet. One of like kind of the first generation printers and to really just do that. Give everybody the model. Nice. Yeah, Go well, ahead. it's unplugged and not connecting the internet My anymore. My goodness. And it'll be fixed. That's how they do it. I figured it out, guys. <laughs> but it's like, so they're obviously scouring networks looking for these printers. Right. It's like, and we weren't the one that bought that printer. We found it at a house somebody left behind. So there's no yeah. receipt that we were the ones that bought no, the thing. No, it's they're not, searching it's not ne- targeted. Yeah, they're searching just, networks, finding these things, and they just try to ping through that. But luckily, the rest of our network is tied up tight enough to where like, they can't get through. He's like, but they are trying. Yeah. So we do need to fix that because like it takes one person know they can get through the printer port to realize a new ways around to get some software and they can get through something well and then even then like you say okay they got through and they didn't cause any damage but you don't know if they're still in there you, you don't know if they put like some monitoring system or something that they wait all the data all the stuff that you use and they're just copying all the stuff as you use it because they're just running in the background so it's like there's a million things that can go wrong and even if it doesn't go to that extreme and they do what they did to us right that they just uh uh, encrypted all of our files. What level of a pain in the ass was that for us for quite some freaking time to be able to fix that whole mess? You understand yeah. that it's like, yeah, okay, we were able to recover everything, but it took some work to be well, able to recover still everything. still finding random, not yeah. problems anymore, but you're going through an old file, yeah. then you see a text file that says, read me. You're like, another one of these damn, because they literally yeah. crossed our entire, I just found some more the other day. And I was like, bastards. Oh, yeah. So, well, with that said, guys, uh, we're a little over our two-hour mark. Um, I hope you guys really enjoyed today's episode and everything that we shared. We definitely enjoyed the conversation in the chat, so make sure you keep coming back every Friday morning, 8 a.m., and text us uh, to be alerted of all this. Text uh, CWTJ, so Coffee with the Johns, to 210-794-9898. And it matters a lot that you just give us that little thumbs up. And if you like the content we put out, subscribe because you get notified every time we drop a video and we're dropping videos every single day. So our goal here is to help educate and help you guys as much as possible and just kind of help the community. We, you know, you help us help you help us help you. So (laughs) with that being said, guys, thank you all for watching and we'll catch you next week.